Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside Indy Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideIndySports.com on the Rivals Network. The Inside Indy Sports Podcast is presented by Dead Soxy, makers of the best premium socks I've ever owned. With the temperatures dropping, we have entered prime sock season, and our friends over at Dead Soxy just announced their BOGO winter sale. Right now, when you buy two sock bundles, you get the second bundle 50% off or get a free pair of socks with any single pair you purchase. To get the deal, just put any two bundles or any two pairs of socks in your cart and apply the code LUCKY, L-U-C-K-Y. If you have bundles in there, it will take 50% off the least expensive bundle. If you have two pairs of socks in your cart, it will make the least expensive pair free. Head over to deadsoxy.com, that's D-E-A-D-S-O-X-Y.com, and stock up on this incredible winter sale. And as always, stay soxy. Notre Dame's search for an offensive line coach hasn't reached its conclusion yet as of Wednesday night, and we're still waiting for Notre Dame to officially announce Gino Gadouli as the next Irish quarterbacks coach. To discuss the task awaiting Gadouli at Notre Dame, we've asked two-time Notre Dame quarterbacks coach Peter Voss to share some insight with us. Peter remains a private coach, a consultant for the Frankfurt Galaxy in European football, and last year he became the assistant coordinator for football replay with the SEC. Peter, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, guys. My pleasure. Peter, when Gino Gadouli, or I guess any quarterbacks coach for that matter, steps into a new job, what what should his first priority be? Getting to know the people that he's involved with on a personal level, M- meaning that, you know, it, it's it's not necessarily about X's and O's. It's about relationships. And so the first thing you have to do in, in, in relationships – aren't something that happen automatically. There's something that are developed. So that that's the first thing, just sitting down saying, hello, how you doing? Where are you from? You know, what, what, are you, what are you looking forward to this spring, this fall, that type of thing, but getting to know the people that he's going to be in charge of. Uh, Peter, you uh, had a couple stints at Notre Dame, as Tyler mentioned, uh, 91, 90, 91, you were the running backs and the quarterbacks coach. And then a couple of years under Charlie. So I think you ended up with Rick Meyer and Brady Quinn. That's pretty <laughs> That's good it. material to work with. I, I I was fortunate, you know, and it's probably one of those things where it's the player that makes the coach rather than the coach making the player. But yes, though, I was involved with Rick as when Rick was a junior and then had Brady in his junior and senior year. So yes, to, to, outstanding young people, two great representatives of the University of Notre Dame. Okay, so when you have somebody that's that elite, how do you split your time between them and the quarterbacks that are developing behind them? Well, most of the time what you're doing is you're uh, in a room with all of them and don't single out just one guy to answer all the questions. You just you know, as you're talking about practice, as you're talking about opponents or whatever it is, you're inclusive with everybody that's there. But then naturally, when you're outside that meeting room, you've got to spend a little bit of time on some of the things that are important with uh, the development of people as people, as personalities, and getting people ready to assume that role if it has to happen in one snap. And Heck, I, you you guys may not remember it, um, but a young man by the name of Paul Fela 
started yeah. a game at, at Purdue because Rick got hurt and didn't practice for a whole week. And so getting Paul ready for that one series that he had as the starter, which I think led to a field goal, uh, you do the same things. You may water it down a little bit for a younger guy, but it's the same type of thing. You, you're just constantly talking. You're po- constantly talking about situational football, and you're constantly putting your arm around them, if I can say that figuratively, so they feel good about what they're doing. Because that's a big part of it. When you're involved, even with the Rick Myers and the Brady Quinns, those guys are very, very sensitive individuals, and they've got to feel extremely confident when they go into play. Uh, and as a result, on a week-in and week-out basis, you're constantly building their confidence. When when you talk about Rick Meyer and Brady Quinn, those are great quarterbacks at different eras in college football. So I'm curious, how much similarities were there still between those two guys as quarterbacks, even though they were playing in such a far apart uh, and eras in football? They were great people that cared about the game. And one of the things that you you have to be as a leader, which both of those young men were, is you have to be people that other people respect. You can't do it by saying, hey, I'm going to do this. You have to do it by showing them on a daily basis that you're willing to work as hard as anybody. And even though they may be the guy that gets the microphone stuck in their face when they walk off the field, they're still walking off the field with an awful lot of sweat coming out of their jersey and they've worked hard. And they, just like we talked about from a quarterback coach perspective, the quarterback coach has to get the players to uh, feel good about him. Quarterbacks have to get the team to feel good about them. And I know this isn't the main part of this, but Notre Dame's involved in that situation for the second time, and I'll probably mess this up, but three or four years where they've got a graduate transfer coming in who is being expected to have some kind of impact on the program, and yet he's been someplace else, has to earn the respect of those people in the locker room and in the weight room. And and what the heck did I see Hartman doing the other day, passing out something at a basketball game or something along those lines? But those guys have to immerse themselves and become leaders. Uh, I shouldn't say become. Have to earn the right to be a leader. And... A very short period of time. So uh, I'm I've got so many things going through my head, but, <laughs> uh, and and I'm uh, so. But let me go here next. Um, you've been a quarterbacks coach without being the coordinator. You've been a coordinator without being the quarterbacks coach. You've been both. Um, you've been a position coach and the coordinator. So what what is the <laughs> ideal configuration, or does it matter? who the head coach is does that is each situation individual each situation's individual without a doubt does it matter who the coach head coach is yes it does without without a doubt uh and, and let's just zero it in on the situation with charlie uh excuse me with notre dame where i was the quarterback coach with lou uh and the variety of responsibilities i had uh, in that particular year, and, and as the season progressed, they changed. But Lou was a very hands-on coach someplace, whether that was offensively one week or defensively the next. But he was he immersed himself in one side of the ball or the other, without a doubt. 
So you had to listen intently. And if he was on your side of the ball, you listened to what he wanted that particular week and that particular day or whatever it may have been. If he was on the other side of the ball, you had better pay attention in those other weeks when he was on your side and continue to do the things because he studied the, he studied the practice tape and he knew what was going on. Charlie, Charlie was very involved, especially with Brady. Uh, very, very involved with Brady from an offensive standpoint. The times you contributed with Charlie were in meetings. We each were assigned a different phase of the game or phase of the game plan. But at the same point in time, there you had to support Charlie and maybe interpret things that Charlie would say in Charlie's way of saying it in a second meeting, especially with Brady. Uh, so you took on different roles depending upon who the head coach was without a doubt. Yes. M much different roles. But was it was um, when you were both offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach, did that spread you thin or not? Not really. Was there an advantage to that? I think the key part of it becomes, are you the play caller? That the, and, and if you're the, if you're the offensive coordinator, you're generally a play caller uh, unless you're working for an offensive coach like yeah. Charlie. Mike in Mike Haywood's early years, Mike was not the play caller. It was Charlie. Uh, but if you are the play caller and you're dealing with a quarterback, now you're dealing in, in a much different level because you're getting trying to get him to think like you. If you're in the situation that Mike and I were in when it dealt with Brady and Charlie, you're in a situation of interpreting of interpreting what Charlie said both through the meetings and the coaches' meetings and then through uh, comments at practice and that type of thing. And you were a little bit more of an intermediary rather than the guy making the decisions and saying, this is what we want to do here. This is why we're doing it. Because the more your quarterback understands about what your thoughts are and understands situational football, the better he'll perform and the more confidence he'll play with. Peter, Gino Gadouli and Jared Parker, Notre Dame's new offensive coordinator, haven't worked together. What is the challenge of getting on the same page as an offensive coordinator with assistant coaches that you maybe haven't worked with or specifically I'm, at the quarterback spot? I'm probably going to sound a little bit redundant here, but it becomes very similar to what Gino's job is in getting to know the quarterback. The first thing he's got to do from a schematic thing is get on the same page as the offensive coordinator and understand what Notre Dame's offense is all about and what changes are going to be made, et cetera, et cetera. Because that, that part of it becomes very important. And he is going to have to be the voice of the coordinator, the play caller in those private meetings. And I'm sure there'll be meetings where the play caller is there. But yes, he's, he's, he, he needs to divide himself into two areas. He doesn't need to know as uh, uh, Coach Freeman as much as he needs to know the offensive coordinator, because that's where he's going to have the most immediate impact. When you inherited Brady after his sophomore year, you know, he was ascending, but he was still kind of in the middle of the pack nationally in passing efficiency. And then that junior year, he went to top 10 and was, you know, in the talk of Heisman and all that other stuff. What, what were was he able to accomplish? What were you able to accomplish that accounted for such a dramatic leap in one year? I I think Brady's ability to grind 
And I say that in a very positive sense because that was Brady. Brady probably didn't come by things naturally. He worked at it, and he worked at it. I never sat in a meeting, be it a team meeting, a quarterback meeting, an offensive meeting, where Brady's eyes weren't down and he wasn't writing something. He constantly took notes uh, all the time. And I know darn well he studied those notes. And thus he got himself to a level of preparedness where the game became easier for him. He obviously had to learn a new system during spring practice and fall camp to the point where he became very comfortable with it, uh, was able to make suggestions, was able to do a lot of things, and felt relaxed during the course of a game and whatnot. Uh, and and I'll, I'll probably mess this story up, but I've told this story a bunch of different times and, again, probably messed it up a bunch. And you guys will probably remember it better than I. But we were playing at Stanford at the end of the year, and we were behind. I can't remember the score, but it was probably like by about four points. There's less than two minutes to go in the game. If we win, we're going to the Fiesta Bowl. At that time, I believe it was a $15 million payout. If we lose, the rumors had it, we were going to the Citrus Bowl, a $5 million payout. And so in goes Brady, and we've got less than two minutes. We're down by four, proceeds to march the offense down on a, on a two-minute drive that culminated in a touchdown of some sort. I, Darius Walker may have run, run it in, but I know – I know the first play was a, a, a deep crossing route to Samajer, and it ended up being like a 25-yard game, which got it going. But what I'm getting at is that quarterback has to feel confident enough and relaxed enough, and he probably didn't even give it a thought at the time. But for a – and was this was the – yeah, this, this would have been his junior year. So it's the end yeah. of that uh, 2005 season. He's going on a $10 million drive. In two, that, that drive was worth $10 million. And that touchdown, that that pass that started off to Samaja, was, you know, it, it, it's just the, the if you want to look at it and you stop and think about it and you breathe and you're going, oh, my God, that's a lot of pressure on a young man. Uh, at the time, I don't even know if he turned 21 uh, or maybe it was just three weeks prior to that he had. But still, he was he, he was a young kid. And that was a to me, and again, I didn't realize it at the time, but reflecting upon it years later, it's uh, you, you got to get the kid, the young man, the quarterback, whatever, you, however you want to phrase it, that he feels relaxed and confident in that situation. And Brady did it through pr good, hard determination and preparation. He just prepared his tail off. Didn't matter where the work was, classroom, field, weight room, practice field. He he did it, and and, and he did an awful lot of it. And, probably as hardworking an individual as I've ever been around. Following up on that, um, you didn't coach a lot during the social media era, but still kids <laughs> would hear things going to class. Um, you know, fans, you know, they would, they would, they would be able to get their message through, not as easily as today, but I'm both at Notre Dame and the other places you coached. I mean, is part of the quarterback, coach's job helping that guy learn how to block out the noise or deal yeah, with and, the noise or not and, have his antenna and, up? Absolutely. And when you develop that relationship, you can get to the point where you 
create some humility in that young man by maybe throwing some of that social media stuff back at his face in a meeting or teasing him about it or whatever, just making him be a regular human being uh, and, and making him relate to, or, or allow, not making's not the right word, it's allowing him to relate to the people around him in a very relaxed, calm manner. Um, and just going about your daily business like it's nothing special. Uh, that that's the amazing part, and you know, I'll, I'll never forget the, an article that John Heisler wrote in the Michigan program at the start of the 1990 season. Because I, I, again, you'd mentioned Eric, I was the running back coach, and I had previously the previous four years I'd been the head coach at Allegheny College, a small Division three school in Western Pennsylvania, and here we're going to open up with Michigan under the lights in South Bend, and John asked me. What's the difference? And whether my answer was accurate or not, I said to him, I said, John, you know, when I was at Westwood High School and we were about to go into a game, there was a knot in my stomach. When I was at Allegheny College and we were about to go into a game, there was a knot in my stomach. I'm sure when we walk out of the tunnel in the Michigan-Notre Dame game, there's going to be a knot in my stomach. That's the same stomach. That's the same knot. So nothing has really changed other than the magnitude of the game to the people around you. It's not necessarily to those involved with it because those kids at Allegheny wanted to win just as badly as Rick Meyer, Jerome Bettis, Brady Quinn, and those people wanted to win. So if you can keep that in perspective and keep your feet on the ground and just go about and doing all the things you can to prepare young men and everything, both schematically, mentally, socially, every which way you can, uh, it, it, it just it just helps. It, and it helps them feel confident and comfortable and secure. Peter, how familiar are you with Sam Hartman's college football career and what are your expectations for him this coming season at Notre Dame? Well, I, I will tell you that I saw Sam from a distance because, and this ties into the other thing, for a, a, a few years now, I've been a replay official so I was a replay official in the ACC, and I saw Sam play in a, a many a game at Wake Forest, and he is a protect-the-football kind of guy. He, 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 he's not one of those guys that is real flashy, but neither was the kid that, that just left Georgia. He was a kid that just knew how to win, and I think that's what Sam Hartman is. Sam Hartman is going to be a cerebral player that's going to probably – give you the aura that he's one of the guys and I think he will fit in very, very well with whatever they, in whatever direction they decide to go. He's mobile enough. He's probably a lot like Brady Mo mobile enough to hurt you with his legs, but you're not going to think of him as the mobile quarterback. That's just going to run it and can't throw it. He, he can throw it and he can throw it very, very efficiently and, and accurately. That becomes a, a big thing. The, uh, but I, I, I'm going to I'm going to take this moment now just to throw a little plug in for both Gino and somebody else that I know because I've mentioned Allegheny College now a, a little bit, and in 1990, when uh, my first year at Notre Dame, Allegheny College won the divisional Division Three national championship, and the guy that quarterbacked that win was a guy by the name of Jeff Filkowski. Jeff Filkowski went on to coach Gino at Cincinnati oh, during, wow. with, with Rick Minner and whatnot. So in preparation over the last 24 hours 
for our talk tonight. Fortunately, I, I just happened to talk to Jeff today uh, and, and figured I'd throw that out in there. So I, there's there's a little from a, I've, I've never met Gino. I, I couldn't pronounce his last name if I had to. <laughs> but, but yet at the same point in time, I'm aware of who he is and what his history is. And I've watched him from afar because of Jeff. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of connection there, which will make it interesting to watch during the next fall. I have a real tangent question since you brought up your role with the SEC officials <laughs> or replay officials. How in the world will we ever get targeting calls that people understand and can live with and so forth? I mean, is it is it as difficult up in the booth as it it seems like when you're watching a game to get yes, that right? Yes, yes, it is. But I, 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 it is that difficult because it's a judgment thing. Right. At the same point in time, it's probably one of the most severe and lopsided or inequitable, whatever you want to call it, penalties there are in sport. Because if it happens on the first play of the game, that hurts a team dramatically. If it happens on the last play of the game, you got a whole week to get ready for next week. And at this point in time, it may even get overturned during the week. But one of the suggestions that I would have is instead of this idea of 913 and 914, which are the two different categories of targeting, we change the names. Target targeting is hitting a um defenseless player in the head. Okay. That that that's in the head or neck area. That that is targeting. The other one that gets messed up a little bit is the old spearing. That if you hit with the top of your the, the 913 aspect. If you hit with the top of your helmet, that that's targeting too. And number one, what is the definition of a top of the helmet? That that varies from week to week sometimes. Uh, and what is a defenseless player can vary from week to week. It's the one place where replay is asked to insert some kind of judgment. Most calls that replay is involved with are specifics. Was his knee or was a body part on the ground before he lost control of the ball? Or did he lose control of the ball before any body part was down? Generally, that's pretty clear to see. Did he step on the out-of-bounds line? Did he get two feet down inbounds before he went out of bounds? Whereas targeting, it becomes very similar to pass interference. Is that or is that not taking aim? Is that a forcible hit? Is that with the crown of his helmet? There's so much judgment involved, it becomes very, very frustrating when it changes week to week. But I, I will say that, and we watched him this past weekend a little bit on the XFL, Dean Blandino has, is doing a super job of trying to nationalize the opinion of everybody on what is and is not a reversible play, be it targeting or anything. Dean's doing a great job with it. But it is. It's 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 frustrating. I understand. <laughs> Officiating is always going to be frustrating to someone. Just it matters who whose side you're on. Uh, oh, <laughs> uh, as Notre Dame's looking for an offensive line coach, what how important is it for the offensive coordinator to have a voice or have a say in who becomes that offensive line coach? Um, I think it's probably extremely important. Uh basically because when you have uh, the inner workings of a staff, I think there are probably 
four people that are critical. The on the offensive side, you need a skilled guy who control can control all the skilled positions if he has to, if he needs to, and you need the the guy up front. And the same thing exists defensively. You need an upfront guy and you need a guy who can defend the pass or the secondary part. So you need two people. Uh, now, in an offensive staff, if you've got a running back coach, a quarterback coach, tight end coach, an offensive line coach, and a wide receiver coach, you get five, you have five voices in there, and maybe the head coach, six. But there are two people that are going to do the majority of that conversation. It's the offensive line. Can we protect it? Can we block it? How do we pick up the stunt and that type of thing? And it's the coordinator who's going to put all the other pieces together. So as far as a working relationship, I think that needs to be probably one of the mo ones that's the most comfortable is the offensive play caller, if you will, and the offensive line coach. Unless the offensive line coach is the play caller, then he, if that's the case, then he needs to have a tremendous relationship with the quarterback coach because that's where the next voice becomes. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you if you had if I, I didn't ask you about if you had a great Joe Moore story. <laughs> um it, it, yeah, I I I it, and it's not a Joe Moore story as much as it is just a story. And it basically becomes goes back to the Allegheny College thing and how does a guy from Allegheny College get to Notre Dame to begin with. And uh, bless his heart, he just passed away. A guy by the name of Frank Fuhr was a very good and a very loyal Notre Dame fan. He was a good friend of Gene Corrigan's and a good friend of Lou Holtz's. But Frank was also a graduate of Allegheny College and somebody that I'd become friends with. Frank had me come down to Oakmont. I was a better golfer back in those days than I was today. But I, I went down to Oakmont, played golf with Frank and Lou at one point in time. And then when Jim Strong left, um, Frank got in touch with Joe Moore because he was very close to Joe. And the thing goes, blah, blah, blah. And Lou, Lou ends up flying to Meadville, Pennsylvania, interviews me, leaves. I think this is on a Thursday night. That's Saturday. And this is the Joe Moore story. Lou is in the car with Joe Moore driving to a recruit's house. Pretty lengthy drive, but they they drive, and a lot of the conversation goes, goes along. Who are we going to hire as a running back coach? Because this is now probably the end of January, and Jim Strong had left probably in the middle of December. So anyway, they get to the recruit's house, and through Joe's conversations with Lou in the car, the prospect – Lou, Lou says to him, I've just hired a running back coach I think you're really going to like. Now, this is on a Saturday. Lou called me on Monday night, offered me the job, but I was the guy that he was referring to that Joe had convinced he ought to give me the opportunity, and the running back was Jerome Bettis. So wow. I, I've always liked that story as Lou and uh, Joe drove to uh, talk to Jerome and then Jerome knew I was going to Notre Dame before I do. Before I did, <laughs> I'm not sure that Jerome actually knew my name at that time. But uh, it, it it was it was just a story that I've always remembered since it bit said to me a couple of different times. But I I think one of the greatest tributes to Joe Moore, and this is going to now play uh, 
pay kudos to another Notre Dame game name is that Aaron Taylor spearheaded the Joe Moore Award. What what a what a fabulous tribute and a sign of respect in what Joe meant to all of those guys. Uh, but I I I, I all the, the the other the other one that as you got me rolling now. But the the other one was when it's this time of year and all the coaches would come in and spring practice was going on and guys would want to sit down and talk to you because you're at Notre Dame and you know theoretically people on the outside think you have all the answers. <laughs> When in reality, when you're on the inside, you're trying to find an answer. But but Joe would sit there, he'd answer a couple of questions, and then and then he'd say, you know, the next thing I'd do, I, I'd ask that person that was sitting there that came in to ask me all these questions, well, what do you do? And he said, it's the best thing in the world, because now that guy who came in to learn from us, he now talks to me for half an hour about what he's doing. So I've always remembered that, too, that Joe didn't, Joe didn't like the clinic a whole heck of a lot, so he'd always turn the tables – <laughs> and get the people who are visiting to talk to him and tell tell him what he knew as opposed to having to answer a bunch of questions. <laughs> but what a what a tremendous person Joe was. Well, Peter, awesome. we, we, yeah, we really appreciate you taking time to answer our questions and share your stories. It's a uh, valuable insight that I'm sure our listeners will enjoy. So we appreciate you taking time to talk to us and best of luck for you moving forward. Thank you, Tyler. Thank, thank you, Eric. I enjoy it. So don't ever hesitate to ask. As a reminder, the Inside ND Sports podcast is presented by Dead Soxy, maker of the best dress socks you'll ever wear. With the temperatures dropping, or in our case, freezing rain today, uh, we have entered prime sock season. And our friends over at Dead Soxy just announced their BOGO winter sale. Right now, when you buy two sock bundles, you get the second bundle 50% off, or get a free pair of socks with any single pair you purchase. To get the deal, just put any two bundles or any pairs of socks in your cart and apply the code LUCKY. That's L-U-C-K-Y. If you got bundles in there, it'll take 50% off the least expensive bundle. If you got two pairs of socks in your cart, it'll make the least expensive pair free. Remember, all the socks come with a patented technology with a no-slip guarantee made from bamboo for that premium luxury feel. Head over to deadsoxy.com, that's D-E-A-D-S-O-X-Y.com, and stock up on this incredible winter sale. Promo code LUCKY, and as always, stay sexy. All right, now it's time for questions. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND, and Eric's at EHansonND. First one I have for us, Eric, is from at DrewBrennan77. I loved everything Marcus Freeman said at the press conference on Monday. It's his program, and he doesn't apologize for anything. I can't imagine ND alums not being fully behind him. You've covered him for two year, over two years now. How much have you seen him grow since he got to Notre Dame? I would say in leaps and bounds, uh, and I expect to see more of it this spring. To me, Monday's press conference really showed off a lot of that growth in a lot of different areas. You know, I hope to observe – you know, this is through his speech and through his actions, but I'd like to see what that looks like on the practice field. I'd like to see what it looks like right. um, when he's around the team, just to kind of add to that. But, um, you know, just how much more holistic his approach is to coaching rather than, okay, I'm this defensive coach, kind of co-coaching with the other coaches. Now you really see his leadership kind of pervade 
every part of it, including, you know, when there was a controversy taking charge of that situation over everybody else and kind of saying with conviction, this is where, where we stand with this. And I thought that showed a lot of leadership too and growth. Yeah. One, one thing that really stuck out to me was that, and, and this is probably natural more than it is like Marcus Freeman is like, has arrived or something like that. But I, I when he first became the head coach, there was like, he he would like almost make fun of himself. Like, I don't even know where to stand at practice or yeah. like he would tell the story, which I appreciate that honesty. I yeah. think that was good, but like, there's no more, like, at least the, from my, my perspective and the way he presents himself, like he's the head coach. He knows what he's doing. This newness isn't part of his persona in any way. Um, and so it's just like this, you, you sort of get this com- command of what he's doing and the confidence in what he's doing and the conviction in, in what he's doing. I feel like it really comes across. Not that it, not that it seemed like he was over his head or anything in, in that way, but I think he, he was just transparent and like would, would own when he didn't know things. Like, I feel like now he's like, he would, if even if he didn't know something, he would have a reason for why he didn't know it. And he would explain it. And, and there would be some reasoning behind it other than just like, Hey, I'm new. Give me a break here. Like he's not, and he's not looking for those excuses. Not that he was last year either, but I just, something about the, the way he's grown into this role as head coach um, feels, feels different. Um, and now maybe that's just the, maybe part of that is just the position that he was put in on Monday, which probably wasn't, the, wasn't the most ideal position, but I think he handled that well and took command of that. And that allowed him to sort of prove what I'm, t- I'm speaking of. All right. Next question is from at Charles W. Wolf. Do you think we may see more of Marcus Freeman's fingerprints on this offense now that he has his own offensive coordinator instead of inheriting one? I am not expecting radical changes, but wondering if you expect some new wrinkles. I think whether Tommy Reese stayed or went, Marcus was going to be more invested, more assertive in the direction of the offense. Um, So I'm talking more big picture than kind of digging into the details. When it comes to new wrinkles, I think those would come from Mm -hmm. Jared Parker and Gino Gadugli um, as soon as Gino is named. Um, I, I just don't see um Marcus getting into that but again he may be somebody on third and short or fourth and short having a really strong opinion about a play or and obviously he's already been involved in we're going for it we're not but but he may have more of an opinion in in a situation like that but in terms of you know let's do motion on this play or let's use this formation I don't think we're there at this point, nor do I think that would be good for Marcus at this point. I think incremental growth on offense, and and I think he's at a good place. Yeah, my sense would be that his input would be more like philosophy based, and like this is this is what we believe in. And I and I don't I I honestly think there was a lot of synergy between what he believed in and Tommy Reese believed in. So I I don't yeah. expect to see very big changes. Um, I mean I think. Um that could be a reason to be concerned about the Jared Parker promotions. Like, okay, well, are, it, how much better is Notre Dame's offense going to be if we're just doing the same thing we've been doing? Um, I don't nah, I'm not saying that that's necessarily my opinion, but I think that's one way to question what, what the, the next step looks like. Um, but yeah, I think those wrinkles would come from Jared Parker and the assistant coaches on the offense. Um, now maybe Marcus Freeman's like, Hey, 
we're never going to run a jet sweep on third and short again. <laughs> like maybe, maybe he has <laughs> like specific things that, that he knows that he is not cool with and he'll, he'll, or he'll, throw into traffic at the goal line. <laughs> yeah. We're not, yeah. When we're, when we're up a touchdown and we need to run out the clock, let's not throw it on first and goal. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, uh, um, just the, the wrinkles and the specifics of what the schemes will be. I don't, I don't anticipate those coming from Marcus yet. Um, because I mean, he he knows what he wants, but I don't know that he's necessarily someone that is right at a point where he can implement what he wants. If that makes sense. Uh, next question is from Ice Mike USA. How will Jared Parker's offense differ from the Tommy Reese and Brian Kelly slash Tommy Reese offense? Why slash how will it be an improvement? Well, some of it will be driven by personnel, and again, if Tommy Reese was still here, it would be driven by personnel as well. So. Mm-hmm. You'll have better wide receivers and not as dominant a tight end, but some really good young ones that are coming along. Having a quarterback of Hartman's caliber changes so much in what, in terms of what the offense can do, provided the pieces around him are as good as I think they are, right. uh, or I think they'll be. Um, so I think that's where you're going to see. There are things that, Tommy could have done last year with Sam Hartman, even with the personnel around him uh, that would have changed the, at least the potency of the offense. Yeah. With, if those wide receivers come along and, and the tight ends are better than average, which we would expect them to be with this kind of quarterback. And again, so it's not so much Tommy Reese as it is some, in my mind, personnel driven. Yeah, I, I as I hinted at in the previous question, I, I I don't have a great sense for how much different it will be in terms of like philosophy or formations and like I don't know will Jared Parker use motion less or more? I I, I mean uh, there we will learn those things. I I think no one has the answer to that. I don't know if that Jared Parker could necessarily tell. I mean obviously he explained what his vision for the offense to Marcus Freeman in the interview process, but he this is a new thing for him too, and he. He hasn't had control of an offense in the way that he will have control of an offense this season at Notre Dame. So it's not like he can, we can go back and watch a bunch of tape of what this is what he did at West Virginia. And so this is what we should expect at Notre Dame. Uh, So I think that's something that has to be proved to us. I don't know that we can um, speak with a lot of um, expertise in terms of knowing what that, what that will look like and how much it will improve. But yeah, to what, I had the same response. Like Sam Hartman is the quarterback. That's that's what that's how and why it will improve. Uh, the wide receivers should be better, um, and that that combination should improve Notre Dame's passing game um, when it wasn't wasn't a strength last year in in really any sort of way besides throwing to Michael Mayer. Next question is from at Mike Devoy one. Is CJ Carr familiar with the new quarterback coach from recruiting visits when he was at Cincy? Has CJ made any comment about the QB coaching hire? Well, he made a comment after Tommy Reese left about his steadfastness to his commitment and his faith in Marcus's hiring process and and, and getting somebody that's really good. He hasn't, to my knowledge, he hasn't commented yet um, on specifically Gino Gaduglia, especially since he hasn't officially been named and Jared Parker was just named on Monday. But I also think if he had, 
it would be premature. I I think he's probably had conversations with both of those guys, right? But I think he needs to, as Peter Voss was talking about in our earlier segment. This is about relationships, and he needs to get to know them in person and over a little bit of time before he says, yeah, these guys are awesome or or they're not awesome. Um, right. And and so I think, you know, to get a sincere assessment of how he feels, we're going to have to wait a little bit. I still think Marcus Freeman is a key relationship here, and one of the reasons why, again, he has um, – he has so much faith that again, I think CJ is good. I think this is going to turn out to be good for him. And he knew that Tommy Reese leaving was coming at some point. So, um, but, but I think given time, you know, it's not a blind date. You want to, you want to get to know the coordinator and the QB's coach before you really form a strong opinion. Yeah, and Carr did visit Cincinnati in March of last year when Gadouli was the offensive coordinator, so I would assume that he's spoken to him previously um, before this situation, and I would imagine by now he, they've spoken as well, even though the announcement hasn't been official. There's usually conversations that happen before the official announcement gets made, especially at Notre Dame with the with the lag time on that. Um, so I haven't personally reached out to CJ about him, in part because the hiring isn't official yet, um, and, uh, I think what Eric said, smart, like if we want to get like an actual meaningful, have an actual meaningful conversation about his impressions of those guys, he needs to get to know them more than just like, yeah, Hey, I remember that guy that on that Cincinnati visit I took, I think, um, he needs to, um, know him more than that. Or, and maybe he did know him really well. I don't, I don't know. I guess I, that would be an assumption. Um, just given the, the the profile of a, of a prospect that CJ was, he had so many different offers. So I um, don't know that he would spend a ton of time on getting to know the Cincinnati offensive coordinator, but um, eventually we'll find out. I, I I know people want to hear from him, but we, we haven't heard from him yet and we want to give him time before we try to talk to him as well. All right. Next question is from SJB 75 on the insider lounge. Who are both of your realistic number one and number two choices to be named offensive line coach? Well, I would say before today, knowing that Matt Luke flew in and interviewed for the job, I had Joe Rudolph and Brian Callahan, and I said I'd include Matt Luke if I could get greedy. Um, The fact that Matt Luke came in and talked to the staff about the job, I guess I would supplant him as as, uh, and put him at number one with with Joe Rudolph and Brian Callahan right behind him. There's some other guys um, that I also like in the mix, but you asked for two, so I don't want to get greedy and step on Tyler's toes. Yeah, I, I think I, – I guess we have to include Luke in those two, but, I mean, it, his situation is is – it's different in that he, he stepped away from football for a reason. And so does he want to get back into football? I would think that Marcus Freeman, if any, if anyone could, it would be someone like Marcus Freeman that could talk him into, Hey, come here. If you feel like you didn't have time for family, we can make that work. Like we're a family first program here. Our kids are at all the practices. Like we're not like, I'm a, I'm a big family person. I'm speaking from Marcus's point of view, like Marcus, values family he makes time for it um and so you would think that if 
Matt Luke felt comfortable with that, then that would be a possibility. And obviously he's at least willing to entertain it. He wouldn't get on a plane to do this and take up. Yeah, he didn't fly up here just to see what freezing rain looked like. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> it could have been worse, but uh, <laughs> it's been pretty gross today <laughs> around uh, South Bend. Um, so if beyond him, the two guys that I said on our football never sleep show the other night was Joe Rudolph from Virginia Tech and BYU's Daryl Fung. Um, and then Callahan was was would have been my third option before I went to Luke, but now so I guess those are like four guys. That, so I am getting greedy and naming different guys, but um, I we'll we'll see like what the next step is for Notre Dame. How where it like how soon does Matt Luke know what he wants to do? How how soon does Notre Dame know if it wants to push forward in, in offering the job to Matt Luke? We 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 don't necessarily know that um, he's been offered the job at this point, so. We'll uh, continue to monitor that and keep folks updated first on the Insider Lounge. All right. Uh, next question is from at Henry Bede. On which positions do you think Notre Dame should use their four graduate assistants in 2023? I think uh, I think that I'm just repeating what they had this year, and I would use the same rationale. Offensive line, defensive line, linebackers and quarterbacks you know offensive line defensive line you got a lot of bodies to look at um and and you need I think you need help there linebackers because Al Golden likes to rove around um it it gives um the team an everyday linebackers coach and that's what they've done with Max Bolo they've brought in an everyday linebackers coach even though he's listed as a grad assistant and then quarterbacks because it's a super important position. Now, now you do have a dedicated quarterbacks coach, right? Uh, which you didn't have before. So maybe, maybe the tight ends need help because of Jared Parker's new offensive coordinator responsibilities. But I still would probably leave it with the quarterbacks, especially developing the younger guys um, and and working with them because Sam Hartman's only going to be here a year. Yeah, I. When I did this, I I had I did linebackers, offensive line, defensive line, and wide receivers. But when you mentioned Parker, I think tight ends probably does make the most sense. Um, if he's if he's going to be the offensive coordinator, I think that's going to take at least some of his time away from tight ends. Um, so I would probably just change my answer once given uh, given you sort of that line of thinking. I would I. Quarterbacks, because there is the dedicated quarterbacks coach, I don't know that that is as high on my list. I mean, I, I don't know that there's the, a right or wrong answer. They're going to have analysts that help at these positions too, that they're not necessarily coaching them on the practice field, but they're having a big role as well. So Notre Dame will have lots of voices at, or multiple voices at other positions too um, to be able to help those guys out. But from a numbers perspective, it's I feel like it's probably pretty hard to not have an offensive line GA and not have a defensive line GA. And my understanding right. is that they, I mean, we'll find out what happens with the offensive line coach, but Chris Watt is still here for now. We'll see if that continues to be the case. And Nick Sebastian was the defensive line GA, and I believe he's still on staff as well. So um, as it stands, we I believe they have three GAs in place. Um, and it would be, we'll see what happens with the fourth and we'll see if, any of those guys leave. I would obviously Max Bola wouldn't leave because he's brand new, but um, well, maybe not. <laughs> he could still leave. Another, there's nothing that prevents that, but um, that's sort of how I see things playing out. Right. right. And 
One Good. thing I, I'll mention too, when we had John Bryce on the show a couple of podcasts ago, he mentioned that there's a strong possibility that an 11th full-time assistant will be added. And if that's the case, I do think the way Notre Dame's configured right now, linebackers would be that full-time position. Right. All right. Next question is from Alan E. Sturgill. Do you think ND will add a general manager to help manage NIL and the transfer portal? I believe they have an opening for that position posted. I'm not sure that's the exact duties. I hadn't looked at it real closely, but they are looking for somebody with the title general manager. Tyler, you might have more on that. I I do not. I I, I my understanding is there's some adapting of how they're get, handling the recruiting and the administration side of things, but I I haven't I haven't gotten very deep into what what exactly Notre Dame's looking for and how that'll work. Um, I'd argue that NIL should be a separate role. I mean, if if you're asking for my opinion, I my assumption from this question is and Alan they just did hire somebody new. Um, to do some more nil stuff right and so i i think i i just don't see the 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 tie between the two necessarily um i i assume that alan got this based off of brian pulling and being moved to a role at lsu that was described as someone who would manage the roster nil and transfer portal um so notre dame has different aspects of that like notre dame has people on staff that do play roles in transfer portal and Help with the roster. Dave Poloquin, director of player personnel, is has his hands in a lot of different things when it comes to Notre Dame's um, operation, not operations, but like the, its roster and, and, and personnel and where it's looking to make improvements. Um, and uh, obviously, Chad Bowden has a extremely Chad Bowden. I, I, I always do that. Uh, has an extremely important role as the rec- director of recruiting. Um, so I think Notre Dame wants to be able to keep enhancing there and uh, move forward with uh, something that continues to sort of adapt to what the needs are of this modern college football era. Right. Jen's Jen Vining Smith was the addition that was uh, in last week of January. She is going to head up a lot of the NIL efforts for Notre Dame. All right. Next question is from at Mike DeVoy1. Does the coaching staff acknowledge they have a problem in pass blocking by the current running backs? Is this a coaching issue or a personnel issue or a lack of willingness to block someone significantly bigger than you? I'm not sure that they've been asked about it, but we probably should have at some point. Uh, I do think it's a personnel issue, and I think it can be fixed through coaching. Those guys are really good at just about everything else, Um, and you could argue that they're – they had a pretty young running back group last year and the oldest of them, Chris Tyree was the best run blocker. Certainly Audric Estime has the body to do it. And, and Diggs has the strength. I mean, they're none of those guys are tiny. Um, so I would, I would expect that that would be more of an emphasis this year to become more well-rounded backs that will also help them in terms of their NFL aspirations. Yeah. I, I just think that, uh, I, we didn't get a chance to talk to Dylan like Dylan McCullough during the season. So that would have been something I would have asked right. him if, if we had that opportunity. Um, so we thought, we thought that we might talk to coaches at some point in February that changed with some coaching staff changes. Um, so I don't know when we'll get to talk to them soon, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, and, uh, but I, I would be surprised if there wasn't an awareness of 
that not being a necessary, that being a weakness of some sort and not a strength last season. Um, I, I haven't spent enough time trying to figure out what the issue is exactly. Willingness would be surprising, especially like, like Audrey estimate what you tell me he's afraid of hitting somebody. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Uh, so um, now maybe if you talk about Chris Tyree, maybe, maybe you, you, you start to wonder that, but um we'll see what we can learn in the spring. And I imagine it will be part of the uh, to-do list in, in spring practice. Next question is from Irish number one on the inside lounge. Please let us know when spring practice starts. Also, who will be the punter and kicker next season? Well, they're, I think Notre Dame wants to release it themselves. So what I will say is it's, it's not going to be one of those deals where they, open up very early in March, take spring break off, and then resume. Brian Kelly did that a few times. It's going to be more condensed um, into a smaller period of time with it ending on April 22nd. So you can kind of do the math there. Um, as far as the kicker and the punter, I would say Spencer Schrader, who's coming in in June from South Florida, would be the favorite there. And I would say Bryce McPherson, who redshirted last year would be the punter yeah i have no uh no no more things to add to that i will just mention that Penn grad transfer ben Krim could beat out bryce mcpherson for the punting role i don't expect that but there will, will certainly be a competition there all right next question is from marie biafore at biafore underscore marie which player on offense and which player on defense are each of you most excited to see the spring Limited to one on each side of the ball, I will say Sam Hartman by a mile. (laughs) And on defense, Javante Jean-Baptiste. And not just because he's hyphenated. I think he's really important in terms of how good Notre Dame's defense is going to be as tied into what he becomes this year in his final year of college eligibility, the transfer from Ohio State. Yeah, I I don't... (laughs) I don't know how you would pick Hartman unless you were asked to pick anyone but Hartman. <laughs> like, like he's he's the obvious choice on offense. Um, defense, I went with Tyson Ford. That's someone that I've been really interested about, and I think we're, I'm, we're sort of looking for guys that will take the next step on the defensive line, and that's someone that I'm curious to see where he is at and if he can do that. So I think that's probably a little bit off the off the board from what most people would think. Um, but that was the that was the answer that I came up with i think there's a lot of interesting things um about what the defense is going to do how it will line up how how the players will be moved around and um can to continue to evolve in al golden's defense next question is from rhino 1134 on the insider lounge speaking of the defense a lot of the focus has been on the offense this offseason but what changes do you want to see on the defensive side of the ball they were pretty average last season in a lot of areas and had a disastrous red zone touchdown percentage Right. Well, I mean, um, looking at the red zone and the it's really tied a lot to defensive takeaways. A lot of your red zone success is getting turnovers in the red zone. Right. And so a team that is better at takeaways. But I would add to that. And I think it's really important. I would put actually at the top of the list better run fits. They need to be an elite run defense or at least a much better than average one defense run defense. I'd also like to see someone playing Rover who could allow them to play a little bit more base and a little less nickel, not always be kind of slave to the nickel coverage. 
and I and again, I think that will help their run defense as well. Um, more production from the Will Lang linebacker in my final edict. No blitzes in which the blitzies start blitzing from the parking lot. <laughs> yeah. Um my list was better safety play. Um, and that would include being asked to blitz from this parking lot. Uh, better defensive line play. Um, and I think that's throughout. Other than like Isaiah Foskey, I, I think that Notre Dame needs to be deeper on its defensive line than it was last year. Um, and also the interior was okay, not great. Um, and I think that sort of connects to the run fits issue too. Um, so, and then with the linebackers, just some more playmaking from the linebackers. I'm not as down on the linebackers as some people are. Um, but I, I think without question, they didn't make enough plays. Um, so I'd like to see that improved. Um, but yeah, the red zone stuff is comes down to the Notre Dame's inability to force turnovers. That's how you, that's how you give up scores in the red zone. You don't turn, you don't force turnovers. Um, and I think maybe some, fewer coverage miscues may may help in that area um but uh that that has to be a, a, a high priority of Notre Dame's red zone defense because it was it was pretty bad last year all right next question is from James Watkins at invest sense does Notre Dame include buyout clauses in their athletic contracts with such clauses being routinely used by other schools seems it only makes sense if for no other reason than to offset the possible costs of hiring the replacement coach well, one thing is assistants in general now, Notre Dame's got some pretty good assistants now, um, are usually shorter contracts, and they're not usually rollover-type contracts like Andy Ludwig had at Utah, which is basically a lifetime contract in a sense. Um, and, and and so these buyouts, even when they have them, are generally small um, and reasonable, and that's nationally i think that's more the rule than what you see with andy ludwig there are coaches like that where they want to hold on to them long term um but ludwig was exceptional in both the size and kind of structure of his contract yeah but so notre dame does have buyout clauses in his contract we don't yeah. we don't have that information publicly available to us because notre dame is not a public university you will see it those figures cited more frequently for coaches who are at public universities and that information is required to be disclosed um, when requested. So um, that's why you, you don't, you won't hear as much about them as it relates to Notre Dame and what they're getting in terms of buyouts. When say Tommy Reese leaves, what, what, what sort of buyout did Notre Dame receive? I don't, I don't know what that number is. Um, so that's what, so, so that would, would be why you maybe don't hear about it, even though it, is just as commonplace in Notre Dame's contracts as it would be anywhere else. Uh, the last question we have is from at CFB independence movie quote and fundraising plug aside is Swarbrick getting a bad rap here. I I think part of the bad rap that he got that college independence is at CFB independence is referring to is the presentation itself, not just, what he was trying to assert or what people believed or didn't believe. And, and I do think a press conference, even a zoom press conference would have produced a more credible presentation. So whether you wanted to believe it or not, if people saw that there were questions being asked and you could right. zero in on some things, I, you know, certainly Swarbrick couldn't answer 
all of those, but uh, I think that would have been that would have gone over better than the mass email. Yeah, I mean, we are writers first. <laughs> like that's that's our job. And if you have a bad beginning and a bad close, <laughs> bad ending, like you, you kind of blew it, right? Like that, right. That, that's that's the that's the those are the most important parts of a of a of written correspondence, uh, from my perspective. Um, so, but I I I don't I mean, I don't think the email is is where most of the energy is coming from in terms of Swarbrick's bad rap here. I think people had already made up their minds beforehand, whether or not they, whether they believed what, what we thought may be the case. And honestly, I, I still don't know a hundred percent how everything played out. Um, I think, so, I mean, I think there are and a lot of times, especially Jack Swarbrick specifically, there are levels to the criticisms levied at him that are fair. But I think like, I think we oftentimes see like, people becoming unreasonable when it, when they're talking about certain things, their decisions that Jack Swarbrick makes or what they're holding him accountable for or responsible for. Um, I think perhaps the thing that I, the criticism that I think is the most fair, like beyond you like suggesting, well, maybe having a press conference is just like the, the immediacy in which he responded to the report and the out, cry as a result of the report that sort of started it like he he had to be aware of the reaction um and he has he has the means to communicate with folks like us or someone else who cover the program um like in saying that i should be transparent i didn't reach out to jack swarbrick personally but i did reach out to multiple people who would know what was going on at least i believe they would um and no one pushed back hard on what pete thamel reported in the first 24 hours after he reported that um, and in those first 24 hours, there was plenty of pushback and anger and accusations being made about what happened and how it happened. Um, and I know you have to have your ducks in a row to make your, make your point, um, and feel confident that what you're saying is, is what happened. But it, <laughs> if what you're saying is what happened, it shouldn't take that long to sort of tell us what happened. Um, you don't need to get your ducks in a row, I guess. But, um, so I don't know. I mean, it's clearly something it was not executed in the best way possible. Like otherwise um, it doesn't get reported in the way it got reported. Um, and, and now I know that sounds like, well, shouldn't the reporters take some responsibility for that too? But yes, but I, I think the information that Pete Thamel tweeted was information that he was given from a good source. Um, and that's why he wrote it that way. Um, and I, I still don't understand how someone would, give him that information and not assume that the reaction that came from it would be the reaction that came from it. Like there, what else is it a buyout obstacle? Like it just seems like, well, you weren't willing to pay. Like it just, well, it was the juxtaposition of that. The buyout was an obstacle and the candidacy is over. Right. And it actually, apparently it wasn't. And so that's where people get stuck in what really happened. Um, and in in the fans defense that were upset or disillusioned if notre dame ended a candidacy by not paying a buyout and that was their number one candidate if all that happened to be true and we're not saying it is or was right um they have a right to be outraged because it cuts to the fear of 
a lot of Notre Dame fans that Notre Dame isn't trying hard enough, isn't mm-hmm. supporting their coach enough. If Marcus Freeman had been disillusioned over this, that would have been a huge story. We heard from Marcus Freeman on Monday. He was absolutely behind his coaching staff. Now you could say, what's he going to say? Well, Marcus Freeman at this point doesn't have a history of doing a lot of fluff. And the way he said it with such conviction, you know, I believe that he feels like he is being supported. So, um, you know, there that's where it is. But I think it could have been handled better in a lot of ways. And, you know, it'll be interesting. There's there's a chance to be somewhat redemptive with this offensive line hire. Yeah, for sure. And uh, we'll see how soon we get a resolution to that. Uh, well, that is it for today's episode of the Inside Indie Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with your favorite offensive linemen. We want to get to 100 ratings on Apple Podcasts in 2023, and we are up to 91, so we are almost there, Eric. Maybe we can even hit 100 by the time spring practice starts. Um, we've had three five-star reviews so far this month that I wanted to give shout-outs for. Nickname, bunch of numbers, says great insight into ND football. Harbor Bay says great insight into ND football. Great podcast with three exclamation points. And Slop, Sleepy Wombat says go Irish, great roundup and coverage of ND football. Good insights, good attitude, and good humor. The community of audience questions is also enjoyable, and I would agree with that last statement for sure, although – I, I won't say whether or not we have good humor and I'll let other people decide. <laughs> uh, so thank you to nickname Harbor We're Bay. We're funny, doggone it. <laughs> thank you to nickname Harbor Bay and Sleepy Wombat for those kind reviews. We will be back next week with another Inside Indy Sports podcast. Maybe then we'll know who Notre Dame's offensive line coach will be. Our Football Never Sleeps live show continues weekly over on our Inside Indy Sports YouTube channel, so make sure you check us out over there. Until you hear our voices again, stick with InsideNDSports.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs.